Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're in the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 9, and as we move into phase two of the book of Acts a few weeks ago, what we've done is we've seen uh, plot lines develop. We've seen uh, the church is now scattering. Everyone say that word, scattering. They're scattering now. For the first few chapters, we saw the church start. And in fact, uh, one of the very first verses in the book of Acts is Acts 1 verse 8 that says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Up until this point, the Holy Spirit was just a promise. Now it's going to become a reality. And Jesus asked them to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where I told you to wait, in Judea, and then into Samaria, and then into the ends of the earth. This one verse, Acts 1 verse 8, is the foreshadowing for the entire book of Acts. So for the first few chapters, we saw the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're waiting in Jerusalem, and they are God's, Jesus's witnesses in Jerusalem. And so in Jerusalem, they go to the temple. In Jerusalem, Peter and John see the lame man and raise him from the dead. In Jerusalem, Peter and John are preaching the gospel. They're arrested. They're released again. In Jerusalem, all that happens. And then towards about chapter 6 or 7, God begins preparing them for the scattering, for them to move outside of the region of Jerusalem. And as God prepares them for that, not only does the plot line of the gospel going to the ends of the earth develop, we now see new characters join the narrative. We've been recently introduced to Saul, and as a part of his story, we'll be introduced to someone who, for Saul, was once a target but now becomes a brother. So right now today, we find ourselves outside the city of Damascus. God has interrupted Saul's plan, and he asks Saul this question, why are you persecuting me? Now, up until this point, Saul never thought that he was uh, persecuting a person. He thought he was being passionate for his religion. And in his passion for his religion, he began breathing, the Bible says, threats and murders uh, to those who would follow after the way, people that would follow after Jesus and his way. And so in response to God asking this question, Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Saul asks two questions for himself. He says, first of all, who are you? Who are you speaking to me in the middle of the day? Who are you that's blinding me with a light that's brighter than the sun? Who are you that has put me onto the ground? Who are you? We talked about last week, and if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's message, we talked about nine critical critical truths Paul learns throughout his life about who Jesus is from Colossians chapter 1. Fundamental to our faith that we understand that who Jesus is. And then he asks the other question. Saul says, not only who are you, but then he says, what do you want me to do? If you take nothing else from church today, perhaps you can rest with this question in your heart. Lord, what do you want me to do? It's really easy for us to uh, paint a picture of who Jesus is and to say that he's loving, that he's kind, that he is God incarnate, that he's forgiving, that he's merciful, that he's accepting. And he is all of those things, but where our faith puts on work boots and walks through the week is when we then acknowledge that he's this uh, God incarnate, that he's a deity, that he is God in the flesh, And now we're willing to ask this question, what do you want me to do? And our response to that question ends up fueling our faith. We're going to begin in verse 10 for today's narrative, Acts chapter 9 and verse 10. You can follow along in the notes or in the Bible app or on the screens. It says this, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Everyone say Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So there's another disciple at Damascus besides Saul. Uh, Now, this other disciple was originally one of Saul's targets. You remember in the beginning of Acts 9, the reason he was going to Damascus is he had wrote uh, some letters. He had got advanced word to the high priest that said, 
if there's anyone that you know of that's following after the way, in other words, any other Christians, any other followers, just give me their names and addresses. When I get to Damascus, I'll take care of them. I'll eliminate them. I'll murder them. I'll kill them. They are threatening our faith. They're threatening our way. I will take care of them. This is how passionate Saul was. So this Ananias, no doubt, was probably on that list that the high priest would have informed him about. We all read on in verse 11. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Coincidence? Right? He's talking to Ananias. And he's saying there's a guy named Saul. Uh, He has seen a vision about a guy called Ananias. That's you. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he he might regain his sight. Um, there's not a lot of information in here, is there? Look at verse 11 again. Okay, so uh, go to the street called Straight, house of Judas, man named Saul. He's seen a vision about a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so he can regain his sight. Nowhere in there is there um, an indication that Saul is repentant or turned his life around. Nowhere in there is indication on Saul's intent in coming to Damascus. We have established that Saul is pretty well known in the area. He is pretty high up the, uh, the religious uh, food chain, if you will. But it's interesting that God uses people to reach people. We really don't know anything about Ananias from either before or after this meeting. We don't know how, why he's in Damascus. He could have been obedient to the Spirit's call from that verse in Acts 1.8. He could have been persecuted and been driven out of Jerusalem, and that's why he's in Damascus. We really don't know what happened to him afterward. Church history is a little fuzzy on his whereabouts after this incident. But God used this man. He's not an apostle. He's not a prophet, a pastor, an evangelist, an elder by, that we can tell, not a deacon that we can tell. But God used him Likely because he's available. And what ends up happening is Ananias is kind of like the midwife who is going to bring Saul into his newfound faith. So in theory, it's not absolutely necessary for God to have used a person to help bring Saul to him. But aren't you glad that God uses people to reach people? We are all in this, to, in this together in that way. And make no mistake, God uses someone or many someones to reach you. In fact, if you just think right now in your story of faith to where it originated, no doubt there are people that helped bring you to Jesus. God spoke to Ananias in a completely different way than he spoke to Saul, didn't he? When he spoke to Saul, it was a blinding light. It was, uh, it was startling. Here he comes in a very conversational tone, it looks like. And in the case of Ananias, the vision from God was very specific. With Saul, it was, hey, why are you persecuting me? Go to this one place, and then I'll tell you what's going to happen next. In this case, Ananias' case, God's very specific. He says, I want you to go to this very specific house. It's the house of Judas on this street. You're going to meet a very specific man. His name is Saul. Here he's going to be doing something very specific, and it ends up becoming this very specific request. Now, by all indications, he has been praying. Saul has. Uh, That's the only indication of his faith that we have in verse 11. It says, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now, in his Jewish faith, he might have said many prayers. He might have recited many prayers. But this is likely his first conversation with God, asking God for more direction. Maybe it was more mechanical in the past, and now it's a spiritual one. He's speaking to Jesus now, when in the past he was probably speaking to something, someone very impersonal out of rote or repetition. Now, Ananias responds to Jesus. Look at verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. 
And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias says this. Time out. Lord, there's a guy named Saul I've heard about. And Saul, by all accounts, is not who I should be visiting at this time. Saul, by all accounts, has done uh, evil to your saints in Jerusalem. Verse 14, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call your name. In other words, Ananias is just helping God out with information that maybe God did not have at his disposal. You ever feel like you're praying like that? You feel like the Lord is leading you in an area and you say, Lord, hold on, hold on. I only have this much money in this account. If I give this much money like I think you want me to, I'll only have this much left. I don't know if you knew that. It's my, it's my secret account. You need a pin. You need a password and everything for that one. Lord, Lord, if we, if we do this, um, then there's these other factors in my life. I don't know if you've considered those factors quite yet. Ananias is just simply helping him out. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, say that next word. All right, now say it like you mean it. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Boy, in the past he's done evil in my name. But now he is he's my chosen instrument, and I'm going to show him how much he's about to suffer in my name. No doubt Ananias had heard about this angry, violent persecutor. And Ananias' objections were perfectly logical, well-founded, but God was going to use Saul in a way that was going to flip the entire world upside down. Um, There will be times in our life collectively as a community, as a church, maybe you as a family, where God's going to choose to answer a prayer in a way you have no expectation how how it will work out. In fact, Ananias knew a great deal about the mission of Saul and how his mission was to come and do evil to the saints, to bind them, to uh, execute them. And yet God had a call upon the life of Saul. I think if God, uh, first of all, let's look at verse 15 again. Is that verse 15? No, this is verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, just look at the words that the Lord is using for Ananias to get him to understand this junction, this juncture of the uh, narrative. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Isn't that a powerful verse? It's like God is going into the tool shed of, his, uh, of, his, uh, of, of everything he has available, and he's saying, Saul is this one chosen instrument. I think if God were here on this Sunday, I think he would look out and he would say to probably half of us, he would say, he is a chosen instrument of mine. You know what he'd say to the other half? She is a chosen instrument of mine. I say that for this emphasis, each of us is a chosen vessel. Uh, Some of us, uh, maybe some of you need to go back and read um, Psalms 139 this week. Just write that chapter down and maybe read it every morning or every night and let your hearts rest on how God Uh, knew you from the very foundations of the world, that he formed you, that he had you in mind. Uh, The kingdom of God is not built on rankings or a hierarchy. Every one of us is this chosen vessel. And so here's this moment where Ananias says, man, are you sure, Lord, this cannot be your plan? In fact, Lord, we've been asking you to do to Saul what he's been doing to everyone else. I'm glad that God calls the unlikely because that's how I got invited to the party. And it's how you got invited to the party. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God promised there would be suffering in Saul's life. And this was a sobering addition to the great call 
God put on the life of Saul. And it's almost like he was uh, giving Ananias a preview. He's saying, he is a chosen instrument. He's going to do amazing things in my name, but he's also going to suffer in my name. And it's a good warning, um, not warning, it's a good reality check for all of us that to be a chosen instrument of God doesn't mean it's all butterflies and fairies and blue skies. In fact, the opposite is true, that there will be moments in our life where that appears to be what it's like, but there's also moments in our life where we will be suffering for Jesus' name. God would God's call would be glorious in Saul's life. It would also be a divine call. He would get to speak to kings and Gentiles and rulers and others. But, God, but Saul would leave a life of privilege to embrace this higher call. We go on in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord. He says, Brother Saul, by the way. I mean, this has got to be a hard conversation for him. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you upon the road for which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like he wanted to say everything in one sentence just in case he didn't get to say another sentence. He wanted to get it all out in the open and, and, and really make clear to, uh, to Saul, hey, I know some things I shouldn't know and it's because God told me and I'm going to say this all real quick so you don't do anything bad. The Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me. Uh, verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his, Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened from Sundays. For some days he was the disciple at he was with the disciple at Damascus. Ananias went his way, entered the house courageously. He had to overcome this fear or suspicion. And this was good reason to be suspicious. Uh, in the centuries since, Christians have had to deal with those who make um, superficial or um, pretend to conversation, conversions, I should say, to infiltrate the followers of Jesus Christ. That has happened in church history. And it's interesting that when, um, when he comes to Saul, um, he, he, he comes to him in this, in, this, in this posture of great humility. He comes to him, and immediately, verse 18 says, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Blind Saul could never have seen the love on Ananias' face, and yet when Ananias came and he went to him, the scales fell off. And then we see this interesting response from Saul. He rose and was baptized. When we are broken, it's never God's intent to leave us broken. In fact, God's mission is to heal, restore, and to fill us. Here was Saul, and for so long he identified with his own resume, his own strength, his own pedigree, his own Jewish traditions. And God did an effective job of breaking Saul, of casting him to the ground, of blinding him, of really speaking to him. But it wasn't his intention to leave him blind. It was never his intention to leave him broken. It was intention to break him, to heal him, but then to restore him and to fill him. So now here he is, and he's ready to identify with Jesus. And we're not told what Ananias might have told him about baptism, Perhaps he talked to him about baptism, but no doubt Saul had seen followers of Jesus Christ in the past uh, identify with Christ. And so as soon as the moment was available, as soon as he was able to see again, he knew he had heard from Jesus. He knew Ananias had come from God. And in that moment, he said, I'm ready to identify not only with Jesus, but with his disciples. And he was baptized. The Bible says that Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. That must have been awkward. Yeah, just to be clear, Saul was now numbered among the disciples of Jesus. He became close brothers with friends that he had probably tried to imprison or kill. And it shows the remarkable, radical nature of his transformation. Meeting Jesus should just flip our worlds upside down. If you come to Jesus and your life relatively remains the same afterwards, I would ask you to 
to, to, to reevaluate your faith and, and how you've responded to Jesus. Uh, Paul, Saul's world would be flipped upside down. And when Paul talks about it later, this is how he talks about it. In 1 Timothy, he says this, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Jesus, in my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. And then he says this, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes only from Christ Jesus. Paul regarded his conversion experience as something that flipped his world upside down. It reminds us that salvation at its core is something that God does in us. The Bible says, well, Paul actually says uh, in Ephesians, uh, for by grace are you saved, not of works. In other words, it's not because of our resume. It's not because of our traditions. It's not because of what we've done to earn Christ Jesus's grace. It is a gift of God. Otherwise, we would be able to boast about it. And that's what Saul had done previously in his life. He, he boasted about his pedigree. He boasted about how he knew the law. He boasted about all these different things. Salvation is something God does in us, but it's also uh, a reminder that God finds some who by all appearances are never looking for Jesus in the first place. And that's the beauty of God's grace. We read on in verse 20. Immediately, this is Saul, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, yo, is this Saul? Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of, all, of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Immediately he preached that Christ is the Son of God. Now, he was a skilled student of the great Rabbi Gamaliel. He took advantage of the synagogue custom that invited any able-bodied Jewish person to speak from the scriptures, and he did so, and this was his message, Jesus is the Son of God. The message of Saul was all about Jesus. Now, to be clear, when we say the Son of God, uh, it means that you were totally identified with that thing or person, and their identity was your identity. Sonship was very important in Jewish culture, and so when you were identified as a son of someone, you had all of those same rights, all of those same responsibilities, all of those same authority. Uh, the picture is this in the prodigal son in Luke 15. Remember when the father is waiting for the son? And he comes, and the son comes home, and the father does three things immediately for that son. First, he covers him with a coat. He puts a ring on his finger. And then he gives them sandals to wear. So that is on his journey way back home, they would see that he's covered, that he has authority like the father, and sons only belong, our sandals only belong to sons in Jewish culture. Workers didn't wear sandals. So it was a symbol to the rest of the family that when the prodigal son got home, he's my son still. He is, identifies with me. So when Saul says, this is the message, he is the son of God, what he's saying about Jesus is, Jesus is God. He identifies with God. He has the same powers, responsibilities, and authorities as God himself. Jesus is God. In fact, the two occasions when Jesus called himself the son of God, he was accused of blasphemy in the New Testament. So to preach that Jesus is the Son of God is also preach that his life was perfect, that his work on the cross was perfect, that he was God. Paul lived a life that would prove Jesus's deity. Look at verse 22 again. It's on the screen there for you. Nope, there it is. But Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It's amazing to me that the way he proved Jesus was in the Christ was no doubt in the synagogue by preaching and teaching, but they also looked at his life and said, hey, isn't this the guy that used to persecute us? Isn't this the guy that we've been praying for that God would eliminate? Is this that same person? But Saul increased the more in strength, and he confounded him by the way he lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
He said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Paul lived that verse long before he wrote it. Here he demonstrates that. It brings us to an interesting uh, observation, I think, is that as we seek to serve others, God brings more strength to us in our walk of faith. When we isolate ourselves from others and live selfishly, our faith will become weak. Now, you can see this in your own life play out. I think uh, there was a period of my adult life where I didn't attend church for probably a good five or six years. So for those five or six years, I would say I still, um, I still identified as a follower of Jesus Christ, but I let every relationship in my life fall away. Nothing strengthened me. And in those five or six years that I failed to attend church, that I just didn't have the body of Christ around me, my faith just began to crumble. Because there's no one supporting, there's no one encouraging, there's no one gathering with you. This is why church is so important. This is why the Sunday morning gathering is so important. And just for you who are watching online for just a moment, if you, if you live and work and worship in Douglas County in your home on Sundays, we invite you to be here physically. We invite you to come and worship with other people. I think it's so important if there's health considerations, by all means, we understand. If there is, um, yeah, if there's considerations that preclude you from doing so, we, of course, we understand, and we're glad you're able to join us online. But if it's just the, um, the convenience of gathering online versus physical, if it has become easier for you to attend church online than it is physical, I want you to think about what it looks like to physically gather with other believers. When we isolate ourselves from one another, especially uh, the Sunday gathering or church relationships, you will find your faith cripple away, crumble away, I should say. The opposite is true as well. I think in a, in a, in a time where you're seeking to serve others, God does strengthen you in your walk of faith. It's not always easy. It's not always convenient, but I believe uh, something happens when we gather and when we serve with others. And here in verse uh, 20, we see Saul's willingness to serve was a contributing factor to the fact that he increased all the more in strength. Verse 23, as we continue, he says this, when, he had, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. I'm surprised it took him that long, <laughs> right? Their plot became known to Saul, they were watching the gates all day and night in order to kill him. So after many days were passed. Um, Acts is interesting because it gives this whole uh, overarching period of the church. And, and for the next dozen chapters or so, uh, a lot of it's going to focus on Paul, his missionary journeys, and what happened there. But as you read through the New Testament and you start reading Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and other letters that Paul wrote, he gives you insight to what happened in these areas. So in Galatians 1, he explains more about what happened in these days. He described how he went to Arabia for a period of time and then returned to Damascus. And after his return to Damascus, he went to Jerusalem. So this, this uh, if, you, if you're in the habit of making notes or marking your Bibles, uh, verse 23, when many days had passed... We're talking many days. We're talking uh, a total of three years in Damascus and Arabia. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul refers to this incident and refers to what happened when he uh, met Aratus the king there. Uh, this means that the escape from Damascus happened between AD 37 and 39. So taking into account the three years mentioned in Galatians 1, and then this incident at the end of those three years we can surmise he was converted sometimes bet somewhere between AD 34 and 36. So it took this many years for the Jews to plot to kill him. Now Saul now was the persecuted instead of the persecutor. He went from the persecutor to the persecuted and now among the protected. And if Saul knew what it was to be persecuted for his face, he also knew the mighty deliverance of God. Look at verse 25. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall. 
lowering him in a basket. Now, it's hard for us to picture this because, you know, we don't protect cities like they did um, in first century Jerusalem. But they would have walls that bordered the cities, and the walls were significant because they protected the city. Uh, They would have watchmen on the uh, wall to watch out for incoming threats. Uh, When you enter the walls, you did all sorts of business. That's where a lot of business was conducted as you entered the city. But the walls were not like... um, like single walls, they were thick walls, and oftentimes they had passages in between uh, the walls themselves. And so the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall into a large basket. Talk about humiliated, by the way, right? Humiliation. Here's Saul, and he's trying to escape this persecution, and he's uh, being dropped down by a large basket. It was the beginning of many escapes for Paul, and sometimes he didn't quite escape. Sometimes they caught him, sometimes they imprisoned him. And he beat him. Verse 26, we read on, when he had come to Jerusalem. It's kind of a sad verse here. Look at verse 26. Let's actually read this one together. Ready? Begin. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, here's the thing. When you start reading through this, and you read from verse 10 to 26... Uh, it's 16 verses, you read it in a matter of minutes, and you would say, no kidding, they wouldn't trust him. They knew what his intent was. But at this point in the narrative, we're talking years later. Conservative estimates say that verse 26 was about four years after the beginning of chapter 9. So I want you to think about four years they've been evaluating Saul. Four years they've been suspicious. For four years he'd been trying to prove his faith. For four years he's been working and studying and figuring out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And for four years he's being persecuted by the Jews who plotted to kill him. For four years he's been a follower of Jesus Christ. And now look at that verse. For four years and after the four years he came to Jerusalem and he attempted to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. It seems strange, perhaps, that Christians in Jerusalem were so suspicious of Saul, even three, four years after his conversion. They thought that Saul was part of an elaborate and perhaps extended plot. They wondered why he went off by himself for a while. Or just as likely, they probably were reluctant to embrace such a dramatic conversion without seeing it within their own eyes. They simply did not believe he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And at some point, some people might turn their back on Christ. At some point, someone might say, man, I've been serving Jesus for three, four years. I've been trying to be the best Christian I can. I've been persecuted for my faith. And if they won't have me, then forget them. It's interesting because if the disciples in Jerusalem lacked a little love, Saul added a little more love to make up for it. Um, You know what we're really good as Christians and as the church? We're really good at hurting people. And it's sad because, now, first of all, we begin with the premise that we're all broken, right? In fact, the very first song we said, song said, um, we're all broken, and we're all in this together. And so there has to be an element of grace when you are part of a church family or a church community, uh, 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 an element of forgiveness and grace and a, and a posture of humility with one another. Uh, but I would ask us to consider what would our church look like and feel like um, if the, when someone comes to us that we welcomed them with open arms, we restored them, in their spiritual health, we love them well. And by and large, um, our church does that very, very well. I can speak from personal example, from my own experience, that when I first came to the church, um, I think it might be 10 years now. I've been the pastor for almost seven, so it's probably about 10 years. Um, and, and you had no reason to know or uh, me or my story, and a group of people just decided to love me very, very well. 
And I tell that story often, or parts of that story, I should say, very often, because it's amazing what just a little bit of love will do in someone's life to plant the seed that they are loved, valued, treasured, and worth something in the kingdom. Remember what we said earlier, we're all a chosen vessel? No one of us is more chosen than the other. For God so loved the world, that means all of us. It's such an interesting uh, moment in the life of Saul to have lived the life he had, to come to a full point in his life of repentance. He rose and was baptized the minute he could. Ananias discipled him. He went off to be discipled and then to learn and, and, and then left. And then he comes back three or four late, years later. And no doubt for Saul, he was changed. The way he describes it later, like I said in, in Corinthians is, man, if anybody uh, is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are new. And no doubt he was describing his own life, right? He said, man, my old life was this, and I was passionate about persecuting people. I, I, I killed people. I threatened them. I persecuted them. I was full of my own self-righteousness. I was full of my own self. I, 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 was, I was this, but the minute I became in Christ, all things were passed away, and he describes that, and yet here he comes back to Jerusalem, and they just didn't quite accept him yet. And in that moment, we're introduced to another character. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. We're going to spend a lot of times in the next few chapters talking about Saul, who would become Paul. But for today, we're going to rest with thanksgiving for Ananias, and we're going to be grateful for Barnabas. Two people in the middle of Saul's story where he was um, questioned, he was, um, he was suspicious, um, he was an unlikely convert. And there's Ananias, and he says, Lord, this does not sound right, but I'm going to listen to you in this moment. And here's Barnabas, and Barnabas sees, and the other disciples, I don't, I don't think he's a follower of Jesus. And Barnabas comes and said, he's coming with me then. I'm going to take him in. Thank God for people like Ananias and Barnabas, those who will welcome people into the family of God with simple friendship. Barnabas extended the love of Jesus to Saul, and as Paul would write letter, uh, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, man, this 1 Corinthians 13, and um, it's an amazing thing. We call it the what chapter? We call it the love chapter, right? And we read it at weddings. It has nothing to do with marriage. Because in, in that chapter, he writes this phrase, love believes all things. And he's talking about the family of God welcoming people in to be God's people. No doubt when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, he's saying, uh, man, Ananias and, and Barnabas, they believed me when no one else would. They welcomed me when no one else would. In 1 Corinthians 13, he also says this, love doesn't keep records of wrongdoing. Man, the early, the Ananias, surely he had a list of my wrongdoing. Surely he had a list of, the future list of wrongdoings I was about to do in Damascus. Surely Barnabas, Barnabas had heard me, but love keeps record of no wrongdoing. Love believes all. And the greatest of these is love. He ends 1 Corinthians, that portion. I think, I think we can all just um, commit to being Ananias and Barnabas. People that will love and disciple and people who will believe in each other. We continue the chapter and it says this, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists 
but they were seeking to kill him. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Saul again faced persecution and assassination attempts, and this became the reoccurring pattern in his life. The story of Saul's conversion begins with him leaving Jerusalem to persecute the followers of Jesus, but it ends with him leaving Jerusalem as the persecuted follower of Jesus. Now, Tarsus was one of the great cities of the ancient world with an excellent harbor. It had strategic placement of trade routes. It was especially known as a university city, being one of the three great educational sites of the Mediterranean world. You know how long he was there in Tarsus? Most theologians and historians believe that he was there from somewhere between 8 and 12 years before he again entered in prominent ministry, being sent out as a missionary. And at this time, it would also be Barnabas who reached out to Saul, remembering him and loving him. I want to remind us of this. God does not waste any of the chapters in the story of our life. He was Saul of Tarsus, the young, successful, energetic, well-educated rabbi. Then he became Saul, the persecutor, the passionate one, the one who knew the law better than anyone else and would not stand for anybody compromising it. And then he was Saul, the blind. Then he became Saul, the convert. And as we'll see unfold in the next few weeks, as we dive deeper into the book of Acts, we'll see him become Saul, the preacher. Yet before he becomes Paul, the apostle, He spent somewhere between 8 to 12 years as Saul the unknown, in hiding. And these were not wasted years. I believe they were good and necessary years. God used Ananias. God used Barnabas. God used Saul. And ultimately, he used the church. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what do those last two words say? It multiplied. Now, this is a staggering description of the church growth in the book of Acts. It starts with the disciples. It starts with them in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Peter preaches. I'm really glad the Holy Spirit came and then Peter preached, right? Because Peter in his own strength, in his his own passion would have got in his way. But the Holy Spirit feels him. He then preaches. At the end of Acts 2, we're up to 3,000 souls were added to the church. And if you look at through it, and maybe sometime this week, you read through the first nine chapters, the way they're going to keep track of how the church grew is it added and it added and they added 3,000. They added 5,000. And then Luke stops counting. And he says, there was a bunch more added, and then a bunch more added. And now we get to verse 31. The church throughout all Judah and Galilee and Samaria. Where did Jesus say to be witnesses, by the way? Do you remember? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen that happen. In Judea and Samaria, look what just happened. They had peace, and the church is being built up. And then, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, Luke said, many people were added, and he looked at that phrase, no doubt, and he crossed it out and said, no, it multiplied. It's a beautiful movement of the church of God. But here's the thing. It's so interesting as we study through the book of Acts, it's not a series of really easy, fun events, is it? It's not a series of really easy, fun potlucks that get the church multiplied. (laughs) And I love a good potluck. I think that's obvious. It's not, um, it's just not Sunday mornings that contributed to this movement. It's not all easy, sunshiny days that led to the church multiplying. It was the Holy Spirit filling people, and then they slowly yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit. And in the moment where the Holy Spirit was quenched 
or deceived or they lied to the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 6, justice happened in that moment, right? And then they would come back and they would yield themselves to the Holy Spirit. And every time the Holy Spirit asked someone to do something that was completely nonsensical, they simply obeyed the Holy Spirit. Philip, I need you to get up, and things are going really well, but there's, there's, you're ministering to a lot of people over here, and a lot of people are counting on you, but there's one guy on his way to Jerusalem from Ethiopia, and he needs you. I'm sorry, away from Jerusalem. Thank you. He had gone to Jerusalem. He's away from Jerusalem. And yes, there's one guy that needs you. And Philip just goes, and he ministers to them. It's not recorded in scripture, but throughout church history, you can see the Coptic Christians and their roots because of this, Philip, uh, this Ethiopian eunuch that Philip brought to Christ, um, leads him to the Lord and then comes back to another area. Here, uh, Saul, and Saul says, why persecute? What, are, what do you want me to do? And Jesus says, I want you to go here. And when you get here, I'm going to tell you what to do next. And Saul doesn't know any better, so he goes. And some of us would do well by Jesus, but by not knowing any better and just going. He gets there, and then Jesus talks to Ananias, and he says, Ananias, change of plans. There's a guy. His name is Saul, and I need you to go be with him. In fact, he got a vision about you, and I need you to go with him. And Ananias, God bless him, because I would have gave way more than two verses of a rebuttal, but Ananias goes, no, Lord, wait a minute. There's another guy I've been waiting for. His name is Saul, and I was going to leave when he got here, to be honest with you. I was going to jet town and go to the next place, because that's why I'm here in the first place. And Ananias says, okay, Lord, and he departs and goes. And all throughout the book of Acts, it is people responding to the Holy Spirit, even when it's nonsensical, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it pushes you out of your comfort zone, even when it does not make any sense. And the result is here. The church had peace. The church was built up. And the church was multiplied. And they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What a place to be in the fear of the Lord, in reverence. That fear means that they were in awe and in reverence of the Holy Spirit and God. They were just there worshiping because he was so wonderful. He was awesome. And they lived in the fear and they were comforted by the Holy Spirit. May that be true of us, church. Let's say a prayer. Father, I'm so glad that you use people to reach people. I'm so glad that the people early in my life that simply pointed me to you. I'm grateful for my mom and dad, for my oldest brother, for my other brother, for my sister, for my Sunday school teachers, for my pastors growing up that simply pointed me to you. I'm very grateful that you use people. Thank you for the privilege of being used by you. I pray that we would be available vessels ready for you to use. Father, I'm praying for those who are broken right now through the series of events in their life, through maybe decisions they've made or maybe life has handed them what we would call an unfair deal. I'm grateful that it's never your intent to leave us broken. But you have come to heal, to restore, to fill us. You said in scripture that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But you have come that you might give us life and that we might have this life abundantly. So, Father, I'm praying for the people in the middle of their brokenness because it's really hard in the middle of brokenness. The pieces are all shattered. We don't know where we're going to pick them up from. We don't know where they've gone. We're just in a mess. Maybe it's a financial or relationship or emotional or spiritual or just a relational mess, and we're in the middle of this brokenness. I pray, Father, that um, 
I pray that the reality of what scripture says would be true in their life, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And as we draw near to God, you will draw near to us. Father, I'm praying for those who are challenged with our newfound reality in a post-pandemic world where it's really easy for us to isolate ourselves from others. It's easy for us to watch a service online. It's easy for us not to gather. It's easy for us to settle into our new routines that we have developed. Some of them are good and healthy and some of them aren't. I pray for those who are struggling with this isolation from others that, Father, um, if it's just a matter of convenience or their apprehension for um, deeper relationships, that, God, you will convict their hearts so that they might draw closer to you and to God's people. Father, I'm glad that you don't waste any of the chapters in the story of our life. Most of us, if we had a chance to write our stories, Lord, we would skip a few chapters. We would take an eraser and change a few of those narratives in our life. But you have chosen fit to use us with our resumes, with our history, with our brokenness. And for that, Lord, I'm grateful. Thank you that you don't waste stories chapters in our life, but you use them for your kingdom. Thank you that our messes become part of our message, that our troubles become part of our testimony. Father, I pray that we would um, continually yield those stories and those moments to you. And then finally this morning, Lord, I am really grateful for two men named Ananias and Barnabas. Thank you, Father, for two men who chose to uh, obey you, to chose to uh, love someone who was previously really unlovable, someone um, who challenged them and pushed them outside of their comfort zone. Thank you, Father, for both of them. Thank you for how they encouraged people. I pray that in our life, we would have elements of our life that would resemble both Ananias and Barnabas, that we would go when the Spirit calls us and that we would encourage those that the Holy Spirit wants us to encourage. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.